And because of that, because you can move a lot of free renewable heat from your yard into your house using only a little bit of electricity, the system is actually the most cost-effective way to heat or cool your home when it comes to an operating cost. And the thing that has held these systems back in the past is that even though they're the cheapest systems to actually run, mm -hmm. they've historically been very expensive to actually install up front. And that's the problem that Dandelion is trying to solve. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Iyer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Kathy Hanu, co-founder and president of Dandelion Energy, Heat Without Fire. She joins us from San Carlos, California. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. If you had to pick the top three ways our homes are, are heated and cooled, which would they be? Most people heat their homes using natural gas, propane, or fuel oil. So in all of those cases, a fuel that's usually combusted in a furnace or boiler. And then for cooling, I mean, those who are lucky enough to have air conditioning use an air conditioner. And then a lot of Americans don't have central air conditioning. So they might have a window air conditioner or just use a fan in the summer. And the alternative that you are suggesting and you're working with in uh, Dandelion Energy is geothermal energy. What is geothermal energy? That's right. There is a way to heat and cool your home without combusting a fossil fuel. And that's by using something called a heat pump. And although a lot of people haven't heard of heat pumps, they're actually quite ubiquitous in our lives. So to give you a few examples, a refrigerator is a type of heat pump, as is an air conditioner. They're just these systems that move heat from one place to another to cool or heat a space. So are they like heat exchangers? Yes, heat exchangers are a part of them. So in the case of a geothermal heat pump, what we're doing is, as you said, we have a heat exchanger buried in the yard, and that's used to pull heat out of the yard. And then we boost the temperature and um, distribute it through your home using ductwork. Or if you run the system in reverse, we can take heat out of your home like an air conditioner would but instead of pushing it into the outdoor air like an air conditioner, we're pushing it into the yard through that heat exchanger, which is much more efficient than running an air conditioner. So basically, the ground temperature is almost always at 50 degrees. Is that what you're working with? That's right. So uh, if you go a few feet below the Earth's surface, the ground tends to be about the average temperature of the air year-round. So... You know, in a lot of the U.S., that's around 50 degrees Fahrenheit, as you said. And of course, most people want to heat their homes to more than 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So what the heat pump does is it extracts heat from a 50 degree Fahrenheit environment and then runs it through what's called a vapor compression refrigeration cycle to basically concentrate that heat so that we're actually blowing air that's around 100 degrees Fahrenheit through the house. So for the homeowner, they're using a thermostat like they always would uh, to set whatever temperature they want. Since the starting point is 50 going up to like 70 or 72, or you want to cool your home, you work it in the reverse, the energy consumption overall is less to begin with. 
Yeah, you said was right, but I would say that maybe one way to understand it is when you compare geothermal heating and cooling system to an air conditioner in cooling mode, the air conditioner is taking heat from your house and forcing it out into the hot air outside, which is why if you stand on the back of an air conditioner, it's very warm, like the outside part. That's heat getting pushed from your house to the outside, but it's very inefficient to push heat from your house, which is relatively cool, to a very hot summer day, which can be very hot because heat prefers to go from hot places to cold places, not from cold places to hot places. Mm -hmm. But imagine now that instead you have a geothermal heat pump. Now you're pushing air from your house, let's say it's 75 degrees in the summer, into the 50 degree ground. That's very easy to do because heat wants to go in that direction naturally. Um, because you're pushing it from a warmer environment to a cooler one. And then when you think about the reverse process, when you're heating the home in the winter, you're taking heat from the 50-degree ground. Maybe you heat your home to around 70 degrees in the winter. That heat only has to overcome a 20-degree temperature difference, and you don't need that much energy to do that. And so you're really... um, able to move that heat very, very efficiently. And that's the thing to understand about heat pumps is they're moving heat from one place to another. And that's different than a typical furnace or boiler where that's not moving heat from one place to another. It's lighting a fuel on fire and burning it for heat. In one case, you're combusting a fuel and then using sort of the output exhaust uh, to heat your home. On the other hand, with geo, you're just taking naturally occurring heat from the ground and moving it into your house. So what is used to heat the heat pump? The heat pump runs on electricity. So it's similar in that sense to an air conditioner or a refrigerator. Um, all heat pumps run using electricity. and But the thing that makes it so cost-effective and efficient is that for a geothermal heat pump, for every one unit, let's say, of electricity you use you're actually moving about four units of renewable thermal energy from the ground to your house. And so the efficiency of a geothermal heat pump is around 400%. And that, to most of us, that feels impossible. Like, how can something be more than 100% efficient? But it's because Mm -hmm. you're not consuming that energy directly for heat. You're using it to move heat from one place to another. And you can actually move a lot more heat than the energy you take to do that. And because of that, because you can move a lot of free renewable heat from your yard into your house using only a little bit of electricity, the system is actually the most cost-effective way to heat or cool your home when it comes to an operating cost. And the thing that has held these systems back in the past is that even though they're the cheapest systems to actually run, Mm -hmm. they've historically been very expensive to actually install up front. And that's the problem that Dandelion is trying to solve. How much would it cost to heat an average 2,000 square foot home if you compare it to gas, oil, or electric heating? How much would geothermal cost? Let's talk about electric heating first, because in some ways that's the easiest to answer. Um, Because for every one unit of electricity you use for geothermal, you're moving four units on average of renewable heat. The geothermal system will be about a fourth the cost Mm -hmm. of electric heating. For something like fuel oil, I mean, of course, all of this depends on the cost of fuel oil and the cost of electricity to run your geothermal system, but sort of an 
what we typically see is for the homeowners we serve, they're paying around $3,000, between $3,000 and $4,000 a year in fuel oil to heat their homes. Mm -hmm. And the electricity to run the geothermal system might cost around $1,000 per year. So you're looking at a very substantial cost decrease. Now, with natural gas being as cheap as it is today, you're still going to save money. Like For most people, heating with geothermal will be less expensive than heating with natural gas, but the difference will be much less than it would be for fuel oil. So for example, maybe you're spending $1,500 a year to heat with gas, but then you spend $1,000 a year to heat with geothermal. So we see the biggest cost savings for homeowners using things like fuel oil, propane, or electric resistance. Gas customers can experience some savings, but it's not nearly as dramatic. Talk about the the difficulty of installing this whole system and then the capital cost of such a system. Yes. In terms of what the process looks like and how difficult it is, one of the things that Dandelion um, is really there for, like one of the reasons I started the company is in the past, if a customer has wanted to get geothermal, they've sort of had to become a general contractor. As a homeowner, you would have to figure out who to go to for the design. Maybe you'd have to submit some permits. You might have to identify a driller or at least identify a HVAC contractor that could do geothermal and then trust them to identify a driller. There's just quite a bit of complexity. And most homeowners who are looking to upgrade their heating system don't want to take on a construction project. And this is really holding geothermal back. So one of the things we did is we've really just thought about the process from start to finish and making it um, easy for homeowners and sort of like taking on that complexity so the homeowner doesn't have to. But what we do is um, we do a full design. So we have to figure out how much heating and cooling does the home need so that we can put the right system in the home. We then send out our drilling team. So Based on how much heating or cooling the home needs, we'll figure out how much ground loop do we need to install. And the ground loop is that Mm -hmm. it's a thin plastic pipe, about an inch and a quarter in diameter. So it's not very wide, but it extends 300 to 500 feet down into the yard. So it goes quite deep and it's shaped kind of like a bobby pin. So you can think of this long, thin pipe that has a hairpin turn at the bottom and then comes back up right next to the part going down. And that allows water to circulate and go down into the ground, then turn around and come back up. So that drill, it will put that ground loop in, in a position that is accessible. So like someplace where we can get the drill, but then also a place that's convenient to where the heat pump will be inside the house. And Typically, the heat pump's located wherever the furnace or the boiler used to be. So typically, that's a basement or a utility closet. Mm -hmm. So we install that ground loop. Then we connect it into the home in just a shallow trench. When we're finished with the drilling and the tie-in, which is what we call it when we connect it into the home, there's no visible piece left in the yard. Like we, somebody looking at the yard would you would see the disturbance of the grass, right? Because we did have to drill that hole and dig that trench, but there's no visible piece of the system. It's all underground. And then inside the house, we would put a heat pump 
where that furnace used to be and connect it to the ground loop. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it. Unlike solar, there's no interconnection. You don't need to coordinate with the grid or with the utility in any way. You can just sort of turn on the system and start providing heating or cooling, whatever the season calls for. And what about the cost? And the cost? So we uh, have two ways that homeowners can purchase the system. Some choose to purchase it up front and some choose to pay for it over time. And I'll just talk about the cost in both of those cases. So for homeowners that choose to pay for it up front, the cost before any incentives are applied is typically around $35,000. But there are so many incentives available for geothermal right now that the actual net cost to the homeowner really ends up more like in the twenty dollars to $25,000 range. Um, and I think one thing that is important to note is that a typical furnace replacement or central air conditioning replacement it's about eight or nine thousand. That's right. So the so the difference we're looking at, you know, a ten to fifteen k premium up front, but this is saving you, you know, like two to three thousand dollars a year. A typical payback period for homeowners that buy this up front is in the neighborhood of seven or so years. And then for homeowners that choose to pay over time, they actually don't have to pay anything up front. The monthly payment is for twenty years. The system should last for twenty five over the lifetime of the system, which is is about $130 to $150 a month. And typically that amount is less than what that homeowner had been paying before for oil. So it's a great offering for homeowners that were using fuel oil because for no money up front, they're able to get a brand new heating and cooling system. And even paying off that system, they end up paying less than they would have paid anyway for oil. So we see a lot of customers who choose that option. So could the heat pump be um, fueled by solar panels? Yeah, it could. Um, and a lot of our homeowners choose to do that because then you're using you know, renewable energy to power this heat pump that's pulling renewable energy out of the ground. And you're able to have both renewable electricity in your house, but then also renewable heating. So as a homeowner, would you be able to do the solar part or I have to find a separate contractor to do that part to connect with your geothermal system? Yeah, you'd have to find a separate contractor. Today, we're very focused on geothermal and becoming the best possible geothermal company. And there are so many providers out there for solar that um, we typically just let customers choose who they think would be best for that part of the install. So how have you become cost effective compared to what people are doing in the past? Is it the way you drill the hole? Because that would probably be the biggest chunk of the expenditure and the difficulty in in installation, right? Right, yeah, that's absolutely true. I think there are two types or two approaches to cost reduction. One is product and technology development. So I'll definitely touch on that. I think the other is more of just how we've set up the company to do geothermal. So when you think about what's been happening in the past, it's been a very niche technology, not very common. So every homeowner that has wanted to do it has had to have sort of a series of experts do custom designs and installations for that specific particular home. So it's a lot of bespoke work from engineers. And so of course, it's going to be very expensive. Um, What we're doing is we're creating a standardized product that fits most homes and 
we have hundreds of homeowners at a time getting installed. So we're able to just take a much more direct-to-consumer, standardized, scaled approach to doing these installations. And ultimately, that results in a lot of cost savings for customers. But in addition to that business model, to the technology and product point, we've invested in a geothermal-specific drill. So uh, we've really miniaturized the drill that we use so that it fits into a typical suburban yard and is designed not to leave a big mess during the drilling. And we've also invested in creating a geothermal heat pump that is fully monitored so we can see exactly how it's performing over time and give that insight to the homeowner. And also uh, we've designed it to be very durable and also very cost effective. So we've really tried to, to make the heat pump itself something that just like isn't this very, very high expense uh, luxury product, but more of just a reliable, highly efficient, highly performant heating system. How do your installation costs or your costs for the whole unit compare to what it would have cost me prior to Dandelion Energy? There is certainly a huge variation in the costs that we see in the market, just depending on where you're located and lots of different factors. But I see quotes from companies anywhere from $60,000 to over $100,000. And that would not be unexpected for a geothermal system. So our costs are somewhere between a third to less than half, a third less expensive to less than half the cost of what's out there otherwise. Is there any danger to an existing home? I'm assuming that your system can be put in existing homes and not only in your home. So is there any danger to the drilling Because you're hammering at very high vertical beats per minute. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, there isn't. I mean, we really, we have procedures in place to make sure that we're maintaining a safe distance from the home and that the drill does not do it, like create any dangerous situations. I mean, safety is probably one of the things that we think about the most and sort of how we're designing our processes. But just to give you a sense of this, the actual vibration from drilling, it's attenuated very quickly by the surrounding soil. So the ground really dampens that impact and you would have to be extremely close to a structure and that structure would have to be very weak in order to be damaged by the drilling itself. That said, one of the things we do think about is you don't really want to put a heavy object right next to your home because that heavy object sitting directly next to the home can destabilize the soil a little bit and put a lot of pressure on the foundation of the home. Mm -hmm. And so that's one reason that our smaller rig is just a much better suited piece of equipment to the residential environment than a huge traditional rig. With a big traditional rig, you would have to be much farther away from the home so as to avoid any potential damage. And so it it just makes it very hard for that rig to actually work for a lot of homes that don't even have a lot of space to begin with. So you can't really go very far away. And then in addition to being smaller and lighter, our rig is on tracks, which means it's sort of on a rolly giant wheel instead of four wheels. It has like a big track, kind of like a if you've ever seen a snow crawler going across snow or something. And that spreads the weight of the drill out. And that again, really prevents any damage um, to the ground and and leaves a lot less sort of rutting on the yard as well. So it it leaves the yard in better shape. So both of those 
aspects of our drill just make it much better for the for a neighborhood for a suburban house i find what you're doing so fascinating because you have to take so many different things into account like even the soil conditions is you'd have to take into account the geology of the ground that you're digging into I think one of the m- most challenging aspects of this business to be honest with you is is exactly that there's just there's so many different things that we need to take into account it's not the type of business where we could have just solved one problem and it would be done and I think in some ways that's why this has never been done before so I I do believe that this is a huge opportunity and something that i i think a lot of homeowners wish they could do switch to an emissions free heating and cooling system that saves them money but the challenge really is like there are a few different problems to solve and so you know it certainly kept us very busy <laughs> for the past few years but you're right like we we have to pay attention to the geology to the equipment to the financing options we offer the homeowner we have to pay attention to making sure the installation is not too um hard to manage for the homeowner like keep it simple keep it straightforward make sure the communication is good make sure the expectations are right and so yeah it's just certainly a multifaceted problem but one where i think figuring out is so worth it right there's just so much benefit that can, we can bring to customers by installing these systems in homes as a homeowner how much time should i set aside for this installation how many days does it take there are three parts to it so you have the drilling you have connecting those ground loops into the home and then you have the installation of the heat pump itself and we typically do these three parts separately and so the drilling itself will typically take around 2 days the connecting of the ground loops into the home that's about 1 to 2 days and then installing the heat pump typically 1 to 3 or so days so they're all um relatively short episodes but they can happen over a series of a few weeks so while you're drilling i could continue to use my heater or my my furnace or my air conditioner and so basically i'll be out of my traditional energy for about 2 or 3 days in this whole process yeah it should be less than that even i mean we've really designed the process so exactly as you said while we're drilling nothing is changing about how you're using your heating and cooling equipment it's totally fine same with as we're connecting that into your to your basement and then we really try to arrange it where we install as much as we can and only then unhook your existing heating or cooling system and hook in the dandelion system so we really aim for the homeowner to only be without heating or cooling for a matter of hours and that's typically how it goes so you worked at google and how did you come upon this whole project you sound really passionate about that were you always interested in backhoes and drilling and machinery what brought you to this I would have been shocked to ever think that I would start a company that did this type of work. I got here because I was really interested in finding a way that I could contribute to doing something useful to against the problem of, of climate change. And it's such a big problem that I think I feel, felt like so many people do where it meant a lot to me, but it was very hard to know how I could do anything useful. it's just a problem so much bigger than me or you know one that it's even hard to feel like you have any influence over so you know i have a background in civil engineering actually in computer science and certainly a passion for science and so i just 
started to really learn as much as I could about energy and how we use energy and what technologies looked interesting in energy. And, you know, some of the investigation sort of led me to learning about geothermal heat pumps, which I really hadn't even heard of before. And I think like one of the things that struck me when I heard about them is here's this technology. It's been established. It's been around for decades. It does heating and cooling and hot water. They're a luxury product, indicating to me that people who have the means to sort of buy any heating system choose this one. So there must be something great about it from a customer perspective. And they're emissions free. So it kind of seemed like, wow, what's not to love about these systems? Why aren't these popular at all? Because it seems like they should be great. And then, of course, I learned about how expensive they were. And so then the next question was, well, why are they so expensive? And I think it was at that point where I really started to try to understand that. I realized that none of the reasons they were so expensive seemed fundamental. Like it, it wasn't because they were relying on some super rare mineral to function or because you needed to use some hugely advanced manufacturing process. It was just kind of a series of things that had to do with the fact it was a niche technology, the fact that there was, it wasn't really designed to be made inexpensively and it just had never been invested in. Like there was no R&D investment to try to figure out how to make it less expensive. So I think it just became clear to me that if somebody tried and, and really tried and brought the right resources to bringing the cost down, it was possible that there might actually be a way to do that. And the payoff would just be so great from a social point of view. Like there's heating emissions are the second greatest source of emissions in a place like New York state, for example, that has cold winters. So there's certainly a need. And I would say that unlike electric vehicles or solar or wind, there really isn't the same amount of attention being paid to this problem. So it seemed like sort of an area where maybe I could contribute. Most entrepreneurs, when they land upon their favorite or their passion, they have a journey. So was this the first thing you picked out of Google or were there other things which led on to you finally landing on Dandelion? I had this job at Google that was called being a rapid evaluator at X, which is Alphabet's innovation lab. And that was like such an amazing job to, for me to get to have because in some ways it was like my training wheels for being an entrepreneur. I think, you know, I'm not somebody who grew up thinking I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And in some ways I wanted to be like my, my grandfather actually he was an entrepreneur, like he started a cattle ranch and he started a hotel. And in his later years, he tried and unfortunately failed to start a vanilla bean plantation. So like he had all these ideas and, and I admired that. And I thought that that sounded like a really fun and interesting life, but I just never could see myself doing it. But I think in this position at Google, my job was to try to find new opportunities for Google X and so it was entrepreneurial in the sense that you had to identify problems, assess if you could solve them, and then try to get together a team to go after them. And the first one I started with was this project we called Foghorn. That was the code name. And um, it was an effort to create carbon neutral fuel by taking carbon dioxide out of seawater and reacting it with renewable hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So it was a very ambitious project, as you can probably tell. And ultimately, we decided to abandon it, right? To, to not commercialize it because it became clear that the risk and the cost was just too high. Like it was an idea that was 
probably like its time hadn't yet come. And so on the tail of that experience, I think I was just really interested in finding an opportunity that felt like its time had come, where unlike that seawater fuel project where it was just still, there's some fundamental research still required to do what you would need to do in order to make it work. I wanted to find a project where no fundamental research was required, like commercialization was possible. It just needed to be done. And I think that's what I found with geothermal. So basically you found something which was not really a complete invention, but it needed very streamlined process to commercialization. Yeah, it wasn't that we needed to invent a geothermal heat pump. Those were there. It was, how do we make this something customers actually want and can afford? And I would say maybe an analogy would be the electric car, where electric cars have existed for a very long time. They're not new at all. It's just like they've never been productized or packaged to consumers in a way where customers actually want to buy them until recently. And now they're sort of what everyone wants to buy and they're really taking off. And so it's not to say that technology development and R&D hasn't been instrumental to making that happen. It has. It's just that it's all of this technology R&D in the service of making an electric car a great consumer experience and a great consumer product. And so that's what we're doing as well. It's like we didn't have to invent the geothermal heat pump, but there's certainly a lot of innovation we're still doing to try to build on what's been done in the past so that we can make geothermal heat pumps mainstream. And who would have thought that Shell would acquire the EV charging company, Ubitricity? I know, right? It's like all of these oil companies even are starting to try to diversify their business models and invest in other forms of energy because I think they're seeing there's not a lot of future in this world for oil companies. But there's always going to be a future for energy companies. So how much funding did X give you? So while I was part of X pursuing this geothermal heat pump investigation, um, they were paying my salary. They were paying the salaries of others working on the project. And certainly we benefited so much like from these world-class resources to help us investigate drilling technology and look at different heat pump products and do all this business analysis on how much money people were spending on heating and cooling and how much they could save with geothermal. So I think the company really owes a lot of its existence to the fact that Google is willing to fund these very early stage ideas um, in a way that's fairly unique. But then once we spun out, Google X did not fund us. We had to find an external investor uh, to, to raise our seed round. And at the time, that was very hard because I had never raised money. <laughs> so it was certainly being thrown into the deep end. But in retrospect, I'm actually very glad that it worked out that way because I think in some ways, the experience of entrepreneurship is an experience of getting thrown into the deep end no matter what. And I don't think X actually would have been doing me any favors by cushioning the blow. You know, it's like, There's a lot that's useful as an entrepreneur to find yourself in a world of extreme scarcity at the beginning. I forget who gets credit for this quote, but one thing Michael, the current CEO of Dandelion, says is, strategy is the allocation of scarce resources. So if you have scarce resources, you're forced to have a strategy. If you have abundant resources, sometimes you're not. And that sometimes leads to problems for 
for startup companies. And somebody else said on those same lines that you can have a badly executed great strategy or you can have a well-executed bad strategy and I'd rather take the well-executed bad strategy. Yeah, I think the thing is, if you're within a company like Google, your limited resource is really time because there's a huge opportunity cost there. Anything you're focused on is at the expense of almost infinite other things you could be focused on because that company has the resources to do pretty much anything. And that's one of the amazing things about getting to work there. But when you're at a tiny startup that's pre-seed, nothing could be further from the, from the situation you find yourself in. It's like your limited resource is certainly money. So that was a very abrupt transition for us. But I think one that has served us well, like from the beginning, Dandelion has been very focused on cost and making sure we're using resources well, being very thoughtful about how we're allocating resources. And because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is deliver a great value to customers and make sure that they're paying the lowest possible prices, I think it's appropriate that we would always have that mindset. How old is Dandelion? I co-founded Dandelion in the spring of 2017. So it's coming up on four years. And how big is your team now? As of recently, we are now over 100 people. It's, it's hard for me to even believe like, <laughs> that, we've, that the team is as big as it is now compared to obviously just two of us starting it four years ago, but that's where we're at. So actually, I put my zip code to see if a Dandelion was available for our home and it wasn't. How would you scale up? Would it help if you partnered with uh, utility companies like the solar companies now partner with the utility companies or city governments would say that you and five of your neighbors get um, solar panels and the cost will reduce by 20%. Is there a way that you can take this awesome solution to more people? That's exactly what we're working on now. So now that we've figured out the basics of the business model and it's working well and you know, we have our product and product market fit. We're really focused on the next stage, which is expanding and, and being able to serve more customers in more places. And for us, it's a little bit of a different process than it is for a typical startup in that this isn't just opening, you know, a different sort of geography on our website. We actually have to staff our geographies with warehouses and people and and technicians, right? And technicians putting heat pumps in homes, you know? So it's we have to be very thoughtful and strategic about how we do that and, you know, always make sure that we're growing at the right pace. So how about the repairs? Like say the tube, the hairpin tube that is there, say it springs a hole. What happens? How do you repair? How will I know? Well, so the nice thing about the ground loop is it's a HDPE plastic pipe. So very um, durable and just like long lasting type of plastic. And then we encase it in grout, which is like a cement like mixture and it's in the ground. So it's this extremely stable, no moving pieces, just like very secure thing. It's extremely rare to have something like a ground loop spring a leak. If it did happen, we would have to dig it up and repair it or just put a new one in. So it would be a huge repair. And Dandelion has a, a warranty with customers. So if that happened, we would just do it at no cost to the customer. But, but it would be very unlikely to happen. In terms of maintenance that the system requires, typically all that it requires is that the homeowner has to replace the air filter and the heat pump about once every three to six months. 
But as long as they do that regularly, it really doesn't require that much maintenance beyond that. So the indoor component of your energy system can be maintained by a trained HVAC person. Or would I need a specialist in geothermal pump repair? Yeah, I guess it it depends what the issue is. If it has anything to do with the pump itself or the ductwork in the house, any HVAC professional should be able to to help. But, you know, for our customers, we typically just do the repairs ourselves because it's our system and, you know, we have monitoring on our system. So we're able to just look at what our sensor readings are on that system and diagnose it quite efficiently often. So for our homeowners, just like if they want to buy a service contract with us, they can. It's totally optional. We typically ask them to call us if they need any support with their system because we're in a good position to provide it. When did you start installing them? Like, Yeah, our first install happened in the fall of 2017. Now our total number is somewhere between 500 and 1,000. I don't know, to be honest, the exact number. We're doing more and more every day. So you will need more funding. As an entrepreneur, the rounds of seeking funding, are they similar to the sitcom Silicon Valley? Is it as nerve-wracking? I was reading a case yesterday about Jet.com, the entrepreneur who finally got bought by Walmart and how he was so stressed, would literally throw up in flights because he was so stressed. How is the whole process? Is it nerve-wracking? Are you like, I got it, and you have a great technology, and and you have great mentors who can guide you through this process? How are you going through this whole uh, fundraising process? For you, it would be probably in the millions, right? That's right, it is. And honestly, it is so stressful and nerve-wracking. I think I relate to the Jet.com founder. Luckily, I've never actually thrown up, but certainly the feeling is very relatable. I think that it's so nerve wracking because you've sold this product to your customers. You've had people leave their jobs to join your company. You've sold this product to investors, previous investors who have invested millions of dollars. You yourself have sunk basically all your time for years into the company. And I think fundraising rounds can feel like existential moments where if you don't raise the money that you need to keep the business going, you're going to have, that's a huge problem. And it sometimes feels like it's all on the shoulders of the entrepreneur, because at the end of the day, it is often the founder that has to close the deal. And I think like that, that feeling such responsibility and being the one that has to do it. And it's kind of out of your hands to some extent, but not entirely, you know, like all of those things combine to just create a very nerve wracking process. And as a woman in this whole fundraising space, startup space, how hard is it for you to navigate? A classic example is I've heard in Silicon Valley, a lot of the deals, I don't know whether they happen now, but In the past, a lot of the deals were like, hey, let's all men, let's go and sit in the hot tub, have a drink and close this deal. Uh, But um, or, you know, we go out for a late night drink. And as a woman, sometimes there are things that you are not able to do as easily because these deals don't happen only with the PowerPoint presentation that you make, the pitch that you make. They are a lot of networking, a lot of like, oh, I get a good feeling from this person when I 
met him or her outside. So as a woman, how do you navigate? It is a good question. And I think it is a problem. As you said, I think, especially in the early stages when the business is new and there aren't a lot of metrics to judge it on, it's more like, do you believe in this entrepreneur and this idea? A lot of that decision is intuition. And whenever you have intuition guiding decisions, like that is where bias is going to be a really big influencer. And and I think to your point, it's just much less likely that a group of male investors, which they typically are, is going to just feel that instant camaraderie and connection and identify with a female entrepreneur as readily, or it's just not as likely, let's just say, as it would be for someone much more similar to that group of investors. So I think that is a challenge. Is your co-founder a male or a female? James is a man. He wasn't that involved in the fundraising process though. So typically it was only me going to these meetings. I will say that after my seed round, I acquired a mentor, Dan, who would come with me and do fundraising with me. And that was hugely helpful. So I did benefit from that. (laughs) Not at the very beginning, but eventually. But I I think also you just end up with a different, like there are some investors that don't have that bias, right? Like I think I've just ended up with a lot of investors who would not be the type of investors to close a deal in a hot tub with a beer. They're just not. And like, that's, that's great with me. I'm happy with that. You know, so it, it, it closes some doors. I think not all doors close. I do think it's a problem in the industry, but at least one that people seem to be getting more aware of. And the awareness is part of overcoming these biases, right? Because we all have biases. Nobody's free of them. And what would be the next round of funding that you will require to move Dandelion Energy forward? Yeah, we're um, we're certainly, I think for the next round of funding, which will be on the order of a few tens of millions, we will look to really just accelerate our heat pump R&D. So coming out with you know, pushing the envelope with what we can do with residential heat pumps, and then also doing some of that work of expanding our geography that we were talking about so that we can make this product available to more people more quickly. That sounds fascinating. And thank you so much, Kathy, for coming on Mindful Businesses. It was fascinating and fantastic to hear about your journey. Thank you so much for having me. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send us a message on our Instagram or Facebook page. Write to us at info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe and listen to us on our favorite podcast listening app. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with one friend. Remember to rate and review us on Apple or Google podcast. To learn more about this and our other episodes, subscribe to us on our Facebook and Instagram page. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.